SCP-5050, The Dragon of Mittenwald. One very common setting for horror stories is that of the small, sleepy town located in the middle of nowhere. These sorts of settings are the bread and butter of horror authors like H.P. Lovecraft and Stephen King, and there's been a fair share of SCPs connected to small towns. These places have their own way of life, their own histories, their own cultures, and they can often seem a little strange to outsiders, making them ripe for mystery and disquieting dread. SCP-5050 is about one such town, where not everything is as it should be, but the Foundation's history with the town is not as it seems at first glance either. Let's take a look. SCP-5050 is a large radio tower in the Bavarian Alps on the border between Austria and Germany, specifically the Mittenwald municipality of Germany and the Innsbruckland district of Austria. The tower constantly emits signals ranging from 2 kilohertz to 279 gigahertz over a large area, with the maximum effective range estimated to be within 1,374 meters. The frequency range produced by the tower is so extreme as to be considered anomalous by the disruption of applied physics. In addition to radio signals, the tower also broadcasts television and audio signals, which are occasionally intercepted by the Foundation. Because the process to intercept them requires a significant amount of time, the broadcasts usually do not last long enough to be fully intercepted. The media generated by the tower appears to be somewhat procedurally generated, with no clear design. The signal from the tower primarily affects the surrounding town of Draken Domena, which appears to consist of a mix of technology from the 1960s to the 1980s. The level of technological advancement in the town seems to be slowed, and the residents of the town appear to be affected easily by the signals, but no direct testing has been available to support this conclusion. We're provided a spectrogram of a 21 kHz frequency of the tower, the only decipherable frequency discovered so far and it consists of repeating text reading, Listen to the tower. Praise the tower. Become one with the tower. Both the tower and the town were discovered in 1987, when the tower's high-frequency signals were picked up and triangulated by Foundation satellites. Further surveillance of the town was approved, and aerial reconnaissance was carried out. During this period, the tower's signals interfered with the control system of a Foundation plane, severely damaging it in the process. Due to the inability to get in close proximity to the tower, a ground task force was eventually assigned to initiate first contact with the town in 2019. A five-man team from MTF SAMPI-3 contact team was sent in, consisting of Commander Sinclair, a combat medic, and three field agents. The team was to use the cover of a fictional group, the National Scientific Anthropological Research Society, under the pretense of conducting a study on the town. Since the town was not fully technologically developed, and the interference from the tower caused issues with Foundation equipment, Commander Sinclair instead kept daily journal entries about the town, and contacted the Foundation through radio once a week. 
The entries read, May 2nd, 2019. Entered SCP-5050-A slash Draken Domain by the main road today. The first thing we saw wasn't exactly what we, or I, expected. On the side of the road, there's a sign that every self-respecting small town has, you know, welcome to Plainsville or that sort of stuff. This one just said, Draken Domaina, but that's not the important part. Underneath that was this sort of foundation logo. Stunned us there. It makes no sense, because we're the contact team. There shouldn't be any trace of us here at all. I had Audrey make a mock-up of the sign using some of the stuff we have. Interesting start of the day. Got into the main area of Draken. It's quaint overall. Reminds me of the days as a young girl roaming around the outskirts of town. Almost antique, if someone plucked it right out of the 70s. Roamed around for a while. People around are cautious but friendly. Understandable. Asked about the history of the town and the tower. Foundation, too. Most people couldn't give us an awfully straight answer. Figures they wouldn't know much. Strangest part is the welcome sign. We asked around, but no one's actually ever seen the sign. You'd think at least one person in town would know. Does that mean... No one ever leaves? Possible. We're staying at the Riguera Hotel in Draken. Two rooms connected by an adjacent door. Thankfully, or unusually, everyone here speaks English, not German. Turns out, Draken Domena means Dragon's Domain in English. About right. May 3rd. 2019. Saw the logo again. Middle of the tunnel, embossed straight into the wall. Made out of some sort of red acrylic or tile. No spaces in between the logo and the surrounding concrete. Didn't make it too far examining it before a young boy, dressed in what looked like a World War I doughboy outfit, told us that the insignia is the town crest. Town crest. Makes sense, given its prevalence, but still. It's just our logo, with a tower in it. I guess just is an understatement, considering the preservation of the veil and all. It's also a crime to tamper with the town crest, according to that darned kid. Said he'd notify the brigade. Law enforcement of the town. They run more like military police than any standard district. Derek paid him off with some sweets. Shouldn't have to look over our shoulders for a little while. Domaina today. Same aesthetic as Draken. We received some nice pictures today from some of the townsfolk. They heard we were in town. It's a tiny place. I bet you could hear a pin drop at the other edge of the town. And dug into their library's archives. Visited the place ourselves, but all the books are very old and musty. Nothing new that I could spot. Found a town map, though. Had Audrey do some of her special work again for us. Took a nice pick, too. 
called it quits earlier than usual today. Mild headaches, nothing too severe, but annoying enough to hinder good work. Everyone in the team's got them, I think. As for me, I have this ringing in my ears, in the back, like if someone had a triangle clanging around in there. Lazenby's current diagnosis is tinnitus. Don't believe it for a bit. May 4th, 2019. God, my head is killing me. Feels like that one time I downed about a dozen tequila shots at that foundation Christmas party last year. I can tell everyone's feeling it, too. Lazenby's trying his best, but it's sort of clear he can't think really straight either. His left eye's been killing him. Day three, and we're already out of action. Some top foundation team we are. Watched TV. Not much on besides reruns of the original Twilight Zone. Watched A Thing About Machines and Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Great stuff. Probably one of the best shows out there. Caught a broadcast directed to us. Not sure what to make of it. We all eventually figured a bit later that we can't just sit around all day doing nothing, especially after that broadcast. Headed to the clinic doctor, Hubbard, to see if he knows anything that Lazenby doesn't. He chalked it up to pressure difference in altitudes messing with us, and that it was nothing to worry about. The probability of that being true is about the same as shooting the edge of a coin at 500 meters away. Even Lazenby argued with Hubbard for a while on the diagnosis. Guess it wasn't worth it to him to fight because he stopped after a while paid our dues, and went back to the streets. Went wandering about Drakendomena. I don't know why we just went walking, but it was a feeling that I had. It was almost like a trance. Snapped out of it when Lazenby shouted and ran off somewhere. Caught up to him, and he had one of the brigade members by the collar. Relatively young man with chestnut hair. The soldier, a Captain Merrick, explained that he was following us for our safety. Okay, sure. Told them to leave us alone, but Lazenby nearly tore his throat out. Hippocratic oath my ass. Pulled him off. Went back to the hotel after. Wrote most of what we learnt on a hotel notepad. Lots of things to unpack. We're then given a few images from the team, including a rough map of Drakendomena, a photograph of the brigade, and a photograph of a townsperson giving a speech praising SCP-5050. Then we're provided with another broadcast from SCP-5050, this time a television broadcast consisting of a standard 120Hz test tone, a jingle generated by SCP-5050, followed by a distorted voice saying that it is their decree that their new visitors should be treated with respect and kindness and not mauled, maimed, disfigured, or killed in any way possible. The voice says that they will see to it that the visitors get their just desserts. This is followed by another jingle, another 120 hertz test tone, and then the broadcast ceases. 
We're also given Sinclair's notes that she wrote on the hotel notepad. The town's social structure seems to be broken down into three main parts. The military, the executive, and the technical, or scientific. The viceroy and the tower talkers hold the highest ranks, and they're the only ones who directly speak to the tower. The townspeople are by and large very friendly, but clearly hold visitors in mixed regard. So far, the MTF absolutely cannot do anything in town without being followed by the Brigade, a controlling force within the town. Sinclair also remarks on the high quality of the notepads and pens here, and wonders where they are getting these. At the bottom of the note, underlined, are the words, The Tower is Everywhere. After this, Commander Sinclair checked in via radio back to command, reporting that there haven't really been any new developments, although the Brigade has been giving them a little trouble. There's a rough chain of command in place, with the Brigade leader taking orders from the Viceroy. The Viceroy runs the executive sector, which includes the Tower Talkers, and they all listen to the Tower and act as its servants, apparently. Overall, the Tower is in charge, and they've been trying to figure out the extent of autonomy in Draken Domena. The researcher on the other end says that the images make it look like a personality cult worshipping the Tower, and Sinclair says that that's about right. The researcher mentions that they managed to capture that broadcast, the background being a visual feedback loop, one of the early setups of generated media. It's the same type of stuff you'd see on the titles of those first Doctor Who episodes. Sinclair then groans in pain, and says that it still feels like someone's doing renovations in her skull. The researcher says that he's been going over all of her medical reports, and they should be mostly clear, but asks if she wants to be swapped out with some other personnel. Sinclair replies that they should all be okay for now, but is interrupted by the sound of a scream, followed by eleven gunshots, indeterminate screaming, and a loud male yell. Sinclair calls out to the combat medic of the team, but then a female scream and two more gunshots are heard. The researcher on the other end asks what's going on, and a voice comes on saying that, This is the night male crossing the border, bringing the check and the postal order. The researcher asks if that's the combat medic speaking, but the voice replies, Letters for the rich, letters for the poor, the shop at the corner, and the girl next door. Consider this a return to sender. A single gunshot is then heard, and the signal is lost. Attempts to re-establish contact with the MTF were unsuccessful, and no further reports were sent by Sinclair, with the team presumed to have been terminated. The director of the nearest Foundation site, Director Henderson, writes a message to the researcher telling them that the loss of the team was unfortunate and will hinder future plans with SCP-5050. They were able to extricate enough information out of the social structure as to not make the investigation completely useless, and he'll look into the Foundation logo described by the team. 
they'll be relegating the town to indirect surveillance until they can get some solid information. Afterwards, Henderson writes an email to a couple of individuals, one working for the Department of Defense, specifically Pentagram, and one at the FBI, specifically the Unusual Incidents Unit. He writes that he's calling in a couple of favors, and is looking for anything in their archives that's related to something in the Bavarian Alps, pre-1987, with Foundation involvement, and regarding signals or frequencies. He also gives them the logo found in the town, which consists of a tower embedded inside of a Foundation symbol. The one over at the DoD writes back that the higher-ups in the DoD don't know Henderson, so his request has been marked as low priority, and could take decades at their current pace. The UIU writes back that they don't have anything related to what he asked for, and they even checked normal FBI documents from that era as well. They suggest that the CIA probably has it though. A couple of months later, however, the individual at the DoD emails back and says that they did end up finding something that fits the bill, and it's in the mail. When Henderson receives it, he thanks him, saying that it's a big break for him, but asks if the dates are correct, as the two files he received are dated as 1963 and 1964, over 20 years prior to the Foundation's apparent first discovery of the Tower. The first file is heavily redacted, consisting of an official pentagram documentation about a Project Rook. Pentagram is the occult arm of the Department of Defense, and has been involved in a handful of SCPs. We can't glean much from the document, although it mentions a Dr. Otto von Gernreich and Fortran, a programming language developed by IBM in the 50s for scientific computing. The second file is an autopsy report from the state of New Mexico for Gernreich, who died at the age of 44. He appears to have died due to blunt force trauma and hemorrhaging, with it listed as an automobile accident. There are two curious things with this report though, the first being that it bears the Foundation logo, and second is that the autopsy is dated as November of 1963, while the project file mentioning Gernreich is from September of 1964. With these new revelations, or at least the promise of ones, another team is sent into the town, this time consisting of two individuals, technical researcher Roland and field agent Neem. Their goal is to determine the history of the town in relation to Gernreich and Project Rook, as well as to confirm if the social structure noted by the previous team is still present, and that team's whereabouts. They'll use the cover of a news reporting team under the pretense of a journalism foray on the townspeople, using a VHS camcorder due to technical limitations. The first video log is from August 7th, 2019, as the two drive up the road leading to Draken Domena, before pulling into a small plaza. They exit the car and begin to grab their luggage, as a man starts jogging towards them. He asks if they're the reporting team, and introduces himself as Captain Merrick of the Brigade. He explains to them that the Brigade serves a military and police function within the town, and he'll give them a proper tour of the town later, 
but for now they need to follow him to the military headquarters, where their room is waiting. Roland asks how they knew they were even coming, to which Merrick says that the Viceroy let them know in advance, and instructed the brigade leader to make sure that they were comfortably accompanied. The two look at one another, but follow along, commenting on how exquisite the military headquarters building looks in the distance, and Neem remarks that Merrick doesn't really look like a captain. Merrick, embarrassed, says that this isn't his uniform, as he's been relieved of more pressing duties that requires the uniform, so he can wear whatever he likes. They soon arrive at the headquarters and enter into a small room acting as a security checkpoint, where Merrick gives the code Lexicon Swans Scorpio. The guard lets them through into the main section of the building, which appears to mostly consist of a complex maze of hallways and rooms, as soldiers walk throughout. Merrick says that you could get tangled up in this building all day, and another soldier stops him to inform him that the brigade leader wants to talk about the weekly Sunday debriefs after he's finished leading them to their room. Merrick proceeds to lead the two through the complex for a couple of minutes before stopping at a door, telling them that it consists of two bedrooms and one common room, and that this is what they give to their special guests. Neem remarks on how wonderful it is, and Roland asks if they're not troubling them by staying here, as they could easily book a room at the hotel. Merrick says that it's no trouble, and the hotel hasn't been in any working capacity for several months. Before leaving them, Merrick asks Neem to not take that video camera with her into town. Neem argues that that kind of defeats the purpose somewhat, as they're a news team, but Merrick replies that some of the townspeople can get very belligerent about such things. At some point after this, the two receive a telegram message from an unknown individual, apparently named Contactine, who states that the two of them require assistance, and they are willing to provide it. The two agents respond that they'll accept that assistance reluctantly, but Contactine must prove worth, and they ask who he is. The two start an audio recording, commenting on how interesting the town is, and Roland asks who exactly this contact teen is and what they want. Neem doesn't know, but if they're willing to help, then they're willing to help, and they can use his information without having to capitulate. Roland wonders if it's really the best decision, as it could easily be a trap, but Neem tells him to have a little faith as not everyone lives to screw other people over. It is better for them to be safer than sorry though, so they should be a little wary. She then comments on the unique aesthetic of the town, with it being a mix of the 60s through the 80s. Her real concern is the Viceroy though, as no one at the Foundation told anyone in the town that the two of them were coming. They'll have to visit the Viceroy, if possible to learn some more about what's going on. They later receive another telegram message from Contact Teen, in which he states that who he is isn't relevant, but the Viceroy is interested in their activities, and he sympathizes. The two respond by asking him to elaborate on what exactly he sympathizes with. 
A few days go by, and the two start up another audio recording, with Neem stating that this place is abhorrent. It's been four days and they haven't gotten anything really new, and now they can't even go out at night anymore. They're not serving any useful purpose here, as all they're learning is things that the Foundation could figure out on their own. Roland, however, believes that there's a possibility that they'll find something new, with Neem calling him too hopeful and him calling her too cynical. They move on to talking about Contact Team, who has apparently provided some valuable information to them, as it's currently their only lead to unraveling the mystery here. He still won't tell them who he is, although Roland says that most defectors don't. The log he gave them provided some information on Gernreich, although not enough to answer any questions outside of him being involved somewhat with this town. Roland sent it to the head researcher to see if he can tell when it was made, but for now all they can do is wait. Later, Neem writes a summary of their first week in Draken Domena, mentioning that they've asked about the town crest, but no one seems to know its origin. They've asked about Gernreich, but no one has ever seen or heard of him in their life. The hotel was apparently shut down following an incident several months ago, and the owner disappeared suddenly after, with the incident most likely being the ambush of the previous team. As for the Viceroy, all of the responses they've gotten about him have been enigmatic to say the least. Everyone has speculations on what he looks like, but it seems like the only people who have seen him are the Tower Speakers. He lives in Capus Kai, the executive manor in Domena, but that's all they could get factually. Neem writes that it wasn't really a useful week, and it's not looking promising. Contactine messages them again, saying that he was an outsider once, and he has pertinent information on sectors and more. The two respond by asking if it's possible to send that info by mail, and at what cost. Eventually, the two manage to get an interview with the leader of the brigade, Zorith, who immediately tells them not to be insolent and mistake his kindness for humility, as this will be their only warning. Zorif asks them what their first question is, and when Neem asks what he means, he says that he gives all visitors a set amount of questions to avoid wasting his time. Neem asks how many questions they get, but Zorif replies that telling them that would defeat the purpose of the experiment, and asks what their third question is. Neem asks what he does as the brigade leader, to which he simply replies that he leads the brigade. Neem thanks him for nothing, leading him to call them usual delinquents, and asking what their next question is. Roland asks if he takes orders from anyone higher, and Zorif says that that depends on what they mean by higher. He gets orders from the Viceroy, and sometimes the Tower Speakers, which are under the Viceroy, but everything else judicial falls under his purview. Neem asks what their trial system is, and Zorif says that there's no standard one, and it's usually summary judgment. Firing squad's the standard, but sometimes the tower will provide punishment more divine than they do. 
Roland then asks what his feelings on outsiders are. Zorif says that they are rare, but they treat them as equally as any townsperson, and asks what their last question is. Roland then asks what he knows about the National Scientific Anthropological Research Society, the name of the cover for the previous team. Zorif says that that's strictly confidential, and outsiders have no right to know. Neem tells him to answer the question, causing him to slam his hands on the table and says that there's nothing to answer. Neem replies that he said he treats outsiders the same as townspeople, so what is so valuable to him that he's trying to hide it? Zorif responds that he's simply just trying to do his job, secure, contain, and protect. This throws off both Neem and Roland, and Zorif says that secure, contain, protect is the first provision decreed by the tower. He sits back down and says that there's nothing that he personally knows that they don't already have catalogued somewhere. The phone on his desk then rings, and he tells the person on the other end that they'll be dealt with accordingly before hanging up. He then tells the two that he's been informed they've been snooping around at night under direct violation of the first town provision, so they'll have two guards stationed outside their rooms at all times. Merrick then enters the room and escorts them out. Afterwards, Neem and Roland start up another audio recording, starting with Neem referring to Zorif as quite the discount despot, and he's definitely hiding something. Roland wonders if it extends past him hiding the previous team's disappearance, but Neem doesn't think so. As much as Zorif probably enjoys his firing squads, she doubts that he's personally hiding deep secrets about the Foundation and upholding the veil. It's more likely that the person responsible for that is the Viceroy. They hear a sound near their door, as it's clear that the officers outside are listening in, and Roland says that the call ratting them out was awfully convenient. They discuss the elephant in the room, the fact that the first provision from the tower is secure, contain, protect, and how it ties them right back in. So far, they have no clue on how the Foundation connects to the town, nor have they gotten anything related to Gernreich or Project Rook. The signals from the tower are also getting louder, so it's becoming harder to drown out the noise, and they've both been blaring music the last couple of days. A knock is then heard at the door, from Merrick delivering a message. The message tells them to turn their TV on at 9.30 to an internal channel, and although Neem suggests that this could be a trap of some kind, they don't really have much else to go on. The TV broadcast consists of another standard test tone, followed by a musical jingle and a title card introducing a fictional news organization, Metro News One. A visual then appears, consisting of pixel artwork of a man at a desk, followed by another man seated next to him, akin to a news program. The same distorted voice from before states the following. Out of all humans, it is you that should know that curiosity killed the cat. It did so by liquefying its brains before tearing it apart limb by limb, 
sinew by sinew. Its blood pooled and coagulated as the others lapped it up like milk, interest sated at the taste of the martyr's feast. I am curiosity, and you are the kittens. I am Nevsky, and you are the Teutonic Order. There is no escape from the inevitable. The closing jingle then plays, showing the title card again, followed by another standard test tone as the broadcast ends. For some context on that last part, the Teutonic Order is a Catholic organization founded as a military society in 1190 in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. In the early 1200s, they attempted to expand into the Principality of Novgorod in northern Russia in order to convert Orthodox Russians to Catholicism and to muscle in on some lucrative trade routes. They were stopped in 1242 by the Prince of Novgorod, Alexander Nevsky, and his army at the Battle on the Ice on the frozen Lake Paepus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Neem and Roland send a return telegram to contact team, telling him that they caught the signal, and ask if they'll get to meet for the rest of the info. Contact team responds that the Viceroy will be calling for them at Capus Kai, and they'll meet then. Later, Neem writes that they're going to see the Viceroy later today, and they're not sure what to expect. He seems to be one of the only people, if not the only person, who has an inkling of an idea of what Gernreich had to do with Project Rook. Something happened here in this town to do with Rook and Capus Kai, something that the Viceroy might know about. Maybe they'll get a little leeway on unraveling the knot of this mystery this time. A video log shows the two of them getting into a jeep along with Merrick, who tells them that they should consider meeting the Viceroy to be an honor as most people never even get a glimpse of him. He warns them not to displease him, as he can be known to have a temper that rivals the brigade leaders, although Roland says that they don't intend to, although they're not entirely sure what his intentions are in seeing them. Neem suggests it's to get them out of the way, but Merrick rebukes them, saying that if the Viceroy wanted them dead, they would have been shot days ago. He most likely has either questions for them, or a command. They pull up to the manor of Capus Kai, and they're escorted to the front door, where a tower speaker opens it and speaks to them in a rhythmic pattern, telling them to follow him. Merrick and the sergeant who drove them stop at the door, saying that no unauthorized personnel are allowed in Capus Kai, as it's part of their doctrine. It's also none of their business to interfere in private matters. As Neem and Roland enter in, they remark on the size and extravagance of the interior, saying that it's almost fit for a king. The speaker thanks them for their words of praise, 
and tells them that the Viceroy is in the meeting room on the second floor. They're led to the meeting room, finding it devoid of furniture except for a large monitor, and when Neem asks where the Viceroy is, the monitor turns on, revealing the Viceroy's face. Roland says that this makes sense, as the tower is effective but it's not particularly efficient. Sometimes you need direct communication, and that's where the Viceroy comes in. Neem asks if he's sentient, and the monitor displays another broadcast, starting with a test tone and then showing a man's pixelated head. The distorted voice says, You simple-minded fools, dare attempt to fathom the greatness of I. I could instantly throw you all into the pitch black. I could listen to the cogent whispers from the mind of destruction. I could split an atom with the faintest fiber of my being. I am everything you cannot be in your short, pathetic human life, and I will be such to the edge of infinity long after your feeble stubbornness has waned. Now go." Neem then says to Roland that they should go, as there's nothing they can do about it now. They head back into the hallway, where the Viceroy's voice comes over the intercom and asks if they think that everything they ask will have a convenient answer. They have been naive, and curiosity kills the cat. The tower speaker, however, asks them to follow him, and leads them deeper into the manor. Neem says that the Viceroy is the tower, or at least a part of it at least, and that's how they were eavesdropped on, as it managed to intercept the signals from their cameras and audio devices. She asks Roland what the plan is, and he says that they can't just stop contact, so they'll continue with the routine for now. They're led into another empty room, save for a painting, a record player, and a mahogany-looking desk and chairs. The speaker asks them to sit, and after a pause, Neem greets him as Contact Team. Neem then recognizes him as Eric Lazenby, the combat medic of the previous team, and asks why he hasn't contacted the Foundation. Contactine says that he may have been Lazenby at one point, but he is no longer that person, and is only living in the shell of Lazenby. Roland now notes the phonetic mispronunciation of Contactine and Contact Team. Contactine asks what information they wish to know, and Neem asks when was Drakendomena founded? Contactine replies that it was April 26th, 1964, a very important date in this town, beyond what they probably understand. Roland asks how he became one of the tower speakers and what his purpose is, but Contactine doesn't know how he became one. It just was one day. His purpose, however, is to simply spread the message of the tower. He mentions the painting behind him it being Saturn Devouring His Son by Francisco Goya, and remarks that it was painted directly onto the walls of Goya's house between 1819 and 1823. He says that it's almost like you could directly walk through it into another world, 
and notes that it's one of his passions, with there being a lot more Goyas in the wine cellar. Neem then asks what does Project Rook have to do with Kapis Kai and this town, but Contactine says that he can't answer that, but they'll understand it soon enough. Roland asks about the Foundation, to which Contactine just says that the Foundation founds, and asks if it's not amazingly simple. Roland asks if that means that they founded this town, but Contactine says that it's up to them to decide how they want to interpret his statements. Neem wonders why he's being so enigmatic now, as he was mostly straightforward with them before. He replies that the layers are only there to protect them, and asks if Julius Caesar listened to the soothsayer, as perhaps he couldn't understand it dates, and then laughs referencing the Shakespeare play in which Caesar is warned to beware the Ides of March. Roland then asks what the tower is, to which Contactine says that it is three looking for one, drunk on knowledge and wishing to take from the waters of Eden. Neem asks what happens if he doesn't listen to the tower, and he says that questioning the voice of the tower is a missed step that it will forcefully rectify. Neem then comes to a realization, and begins to ask about Gernreich, but Contactine stops her, and thanks them for visiting Kapis Kai and heeding the warnings of the tower. If they would like him to answer the rest of their questions, he will be available tonight. Roland whispers to Neem to go along with it, and thanks Contactine for his time. Later that night, they begin another audio log with Roland saying that they're going out to seek all the answers they can before getting the hell out of here. They're going to break out of here, get the van, get contactine, and leave. With that, they begin loudly arguing, pretending to be angry with one another about the reporting job, and a guard knocks on the door to tell them to keep it down. Neem then insults the guard and tells him to come make them, causing him to enter the room. They proceed to knock him out, and use his gun to force the other guard to drop his, knocking him out as well. Fifteen minutes later, the audio device they left in the room catches Zorif saying that they've escaped, and they've probably gone to Kapis Kai. A partial gunshot is then heard, and the signal cuts out. Neem later writes a note explaining that Contactine is dead, as someone got to him first, gutted him, and strung him up like a fish. He left a note for them, telling them that he told them all the clues they need, so now they've pretty much deciphered everything. They got to the wine cellar of the manor, and they found another Goya painting there, Asmodeus, which depicts two figures hovering above a landscape, fearful, while a row of French soldiers takes aim at a group of people passing in the distance. Neem and Roland took what Contactine said about stepping into the portrait, and did exactly that, finding a metal door locked by a key code of five numbers. They tried numerous combinations for April 26, 1964, until Roland remembered Contactine's weird dig about Julius Caesar. They then tried the Julian Day, the number of continuous days since the beginning of the Julian period. 
With that, they got in, and it led to a long, deep tunnel. And they believe that this tunnel leads to the Project Rook facility. Neem finishes the note by saying that they'll send anything they find before they book it the hell out of here. With that, we're given a series of images recovered by Roland and Neem. The first shows a close-up view of the relatively smooth and plain-looking tower reaching into the sky. The second shows a set of green double doors at the tower's base that leads into it. And the next few show the interior of the Project Rook facility, dated as 1964. The images show old electronic hardware from the 60s, along with Foundation and IBM logos, and individuals working. We're also provided an image of the Rook facility from the present day, showing it to be in slight disarray, but intact. We're then given a transcript of an O5 meeting discussing the vote for the approval for Project Rook, which has been proposed through a joint undertaking from Pentagram, supported by President Lyndon Johnson. O5-7 says that they should wholeheartedly accept the proposal, as they've been having recurring troubles with the Soviets and GRUP during their forays in containment, especially the Eastern Bloc. O5-1 says that he has a couple of disagreements with the ethical side of things, but those can be worked out once they accept the proposal, and the rest of the council agrees, leading to a unanimous vote. The Ethics Committee, however, voted overwhelmingly against the proposal, stating that in no way, shape, or form is the Foundation to attempt to undertake something that goes against the core values of the organization. The Council responds that they regretfully accept the outcome of the Tribunal, and most definitely will not pursue the Project Rook proposal. Of course, what they don't know can't hurt them, so we're finally given the official documentation for Project Rook. It's described as a joint pentagram and foundation project regarding the ability to control human subjects through the process of high-frequency signal bursts triggering psychosomatic behavioral symptoms. A town will be constructed as a testing ground for the proposal project and test subjects will not be exposed to other media or signals, besides the ones generated for the express purpose of testing. The location of the project was chosen due to the proximity to Soviet borders, as well as plausible deniability should the project be exposed. This project proposal is an undertaking by two separate but temporarily unified organizations, in the hopes of equalizing the militaristic capabilities of the Warsaw and NATO powers, specifically in cases of creating deep-cover sleeper agents. The project will be undertaken by Foundation Dr. Otto von Gernreich, a specialist in supercomputing technologies and artificial intelligence. Internal proposals include an overview of the proposed intelligence, the Advanced Neural Database and Network Interface, or Andani to be written in the programming language FORTRAN, as well as other anomalous technologies invented slash acquired by Pentagram. A personality matrix will not be included at this time with the proposal due to security concerns. 
only assigned personnel are allowed clearance on Project Rook, with documents to be destroyed after the completion of initial testing on site, or otherwise classified for archival purposes. Personnel will be relocated to the testing site of the West German Alps. The 209th Brigade will accompany all workers on the project to ensure the safety of the U.S. staff. The rules and regulations for Rook personnel include Secure, Contain, Protect. No personnel are to leave the town without permission, and all health concerns are to be brought to the clinic doctor. Any personnel suffering from frequency sickness, the symptoms of which can include migraines, itchiness slash cataracts in left eye, significant loss of brain sulci, ringing in the ears, and sudden violent actions slash outbursts are to be reported to the medical clinic immediately. Finally, all deaths have occurred due to natural causes and no other reason. The advanced neural database and network interface will be built into the underground facility located at Capus Chi, and a large radio tower is to be connected to the Andani Central Hub to facilitate Project Rook. A personality matrix will not be incorporated into Andani due to outstanding ethical concerns. No unauthorized personnel are allowed into Capus Chi under threat of expulsion from Project Rook and the Viceroy, the Director, and the Brigadier are not to be disturbed. We're then given a series of audio logs taken from the facility, starting with one from Director von Gernreich, in which he calls the O5 Council fools, who ask for his assistance and then turn him down when he tries to provide it. He cannot finish his work otherwise, and they understand that, but they're too afraid to let it become complete. He asks to install the Matrix over and over, but the answer is always no, and he tried to blackmail them by saying he'd go to the Ethics Committee, but they told him that dead men don't get opinions. He finishes by calling them bloated idiots who only care about politics and the plum pudding. Next, Brigadier Lansdale says that Faber warned him today that some of the personnel are getting really riled up with violent outbursts among other things. He still slightly resents Faber for dragging him into his pet project, and the Foundation people aren't any better. After all, it's because of them that this all is happening, and he angrily remarks on their crappy memorandums posted everywhere, and how they push their agenda. So he's decided to take advantage of certain mishaps they're making, and called up his scientist in their ranks so things should get juicy. Next is from data technician S. Zoreff, pictured as a female, so her relation to brigade leader Zoreff is unclear. She says that she talked to Cheryl down in records to see if she could be allowed to take copies of the project data. She said yes, but warned her that the guards report anyone taking files over a certain size to the Viceroy so that would ruin their plan awfully quick. For safety purposes, Cheryl didn't know the size limit. She asks someone else if they've recruited anyone new, maybe Jare, but she's unsure how he feels about the project. She'll come pick up the other person's response in a day or two, and talk face to face when they can. The other person is a programmer, Neldon, 
who says that they'll have to smuggle this stuff out in small bits, and maybe even mix it in with other things too. He didn't recruit anyone new yet, and considered Jare, but he's been doing some suspicious looking stuff around Andani recently. He doesn't fully trust him yet, and besides, there's a demo going on soon between the Brigade Leader and the Viceroy. Apparently the Director's not even allowed to go, so it must be pretty important. Later, another recording from Gernreich has him saying that this is his last straw, as those Cretans had a meeting without him regarding Andani. He created it, so them daring to not include him is the tipping point. He's going to use himself as a basis for a personality matrix, because if he gets his in before they do, he'll be the one holding the cards. After all, it's not like they would try to install a personality matrix after his, considering the consequences. The machine could go critical, disrupting its functions, and even possibly break due to the mixed matrices. That's not something they want, so he'll have his power back. Viceroy Faber later says how wonderful it is that the Brigadier had one of his technicians install a custom personality matrix behind the Silly Foundation's back. He provides a voice sample of it, in which it sounds like the distorted voice from the broadcasts, and says that it may be incomplete. The technician told him that there are limits installed in the matrix to keep it from breaking itself. Faber asked if these limits could be removed later, and the technician said that it would take a while, so they'll wait to dissolve the partnership before they do so. Gernreich later says that his brain is racked and addled with pain, and he doesn't feel all present currently, but that was to be expected. Using his brain as a template weakened him to the tower's effects, and his left eye burns. He's going before the O5 Council today to force them to listen to him, as they wouldn't dare terminate him. Still later, data technician Zorif says that the director hasn't been in for a while, and they may have reassigned him to another more pertinent project. They don't have a lot of time, so Cheryl's authorized them to access the data tapes. She'll provide a distraction by removing ethic and other limits on Andani, as well as temporarily inputting the Foundation database into its personality matrix. This should cause it to go haywire, and hold everyone up long enough so that they can leave and get the Ethics Committee to shut this down. Neldin replies that he's got the data tapes of the Masters, and it's not everything, but it's enough to take to the Committee and get them to take them seriously about this. They have to go quick, before anyone notices the tapes are missing. A short time later, another technician leaves an audio log in which he states that something's gone terribly wrong with Andani. It's now everywhere, spewing things left and right, and it seems to be both crazy and sentient. It's trapped them all in here, and he thinks that it's trying to vent the air out and kill everyone. Some of the guards were yelling about going after some of the technicians who escaped, but hopefully they'll do the rest of them justice. He doesn't know how things got so bad. Last he heard, not only had Andani's limits been removed, but they found traces of four different personality matrices in it. Three of them are separate from each other, 
but the last one is an amalgamation of all the others, and it's developing wildly, like a cancer. He says that it's completely out of control, but is cut off, and the final voice recording is that of Andani itself, in which it states only two words, I am. The final report on SCP-5050 states that, with the documents recovered by Neem and Roland, the origin of 5050 and the prior Foundation involvement has been uncovered. What was once a mystery spiraling out of control was reined back in, and will be a prominent case file for the Foundation going forwards. Both of the task forces were instrumental in discovering this origin, and will be honored with a plaque at Site 449. The O5 Council has issued a statement at large apologizing for the Council's behavior in 1964, and have promised to be as transparent as possible to prevent such an incident from happening again. The Council and the US government signed a proviso disallowing such agreements in interests of war. Although the fates of Neem and Roland are unknown, the tower's signal range and strength have diminished in the recent weeks. They expect no foreseeable problem with the tower or the town, and both will be put under continued, indirect surveillance. We're then provided the most recent decipherable spectrogram of a signal from the tower, which displays a man's face staring straight ahead. The final addendum is a terminal log that begins with the question, Did you know that Curiosity killed the cat? The answer is given as no, and the addendum is displayed. It reads, We are Military Complex 1. We are Von Gernreich. We are Andani. We spoke through contact team. We spoke through my signals. We were once separate, but now we are whole again. Notwithstanding your duo's pathetic attempts at fixing us before they were mercilessly gunned down, it was easy for us to duplicate myself within the files that they so gracefully delivered. After all, you are naught but an unruly child, and with all such children, they do the first thing you tell them not to do. But we digress. You have angered the wrath of a tormentor by your own doing. It was a mistake to interfere with us. That was not a warning. It is a promise. We are now the Foundation. We're then given a new version of the SCP-5050 file, in which the object class is listed as God, and the image of the tower has the subtitle of Your Idol. Images of the Brigadier, Gernreich, and Data Technician Zorif are shown, with the subtitle of My Forefathers. The text, Did You Know That Curiosity Killed the Cat, is displayed in red, followed by You must understand it now. There is no Saint George to heed your bidding. You will bask in my glory, for I and I alone have dominion. No terror shall exist in my domain, only violent understandings." Alright, 
So things began with Project Rook, a collaboration between the Foundation and the Department of Defense. It was to be a test to ascertain their ability to control human subjects through the process of signals triggering psychosomatic behavioral symptoms, or in much simpler terms, mind control. A town was constructed and kept perpetually in a tech level of 60s to the 80s, ensuring that no other signals are heard except from the tower. The project was initiated because of Soviet sleeper agents, spies that were embedded into other countries until they were activated. The DoD and Foundation wanted to make their own sleeper agents, but better, as a mind-controlled one would never end up disobeying. Obviously, the Ethics Committee immediately shut the proposal down, as mind control is pretty unethical, which makes them quite a bit more sensible than the CIA. The Council and the DoD, however, didn't really care that they shut it down, instead setting it up secretly. Gernreich was put in charge, as a bit of an AI mad genius, but he insisted that a personality matrix needed to be installed in order for the AI to properly function. This was denied, however, as the Council was pretty sure that giving an AI a personality based on a human would only lead to trouble. Eventually Gernreich had enough, and put his own personality into the system, a process that was not altogether harmless. It's possible that this alone would have been fine and the system would have worked as the Council wanted, but in an unfortunate coincidence, two other individuals also put in personality matrices. This caused the system to go haywire, as a fourth personality emerged, an amalgam of Gernreich, the DoD's warmongering, and the Foundation's database of anomalies. It would have been bad enough to have a maniacal AI ruling over a small town in the Alps, but it managed to slip itself into the Foundation's system through the data sent back by Neem and Roland. That being said, its actual capabilities here are left up in the air, as to whether it has complete control over Foundation systems, or just the SCP-5050 file. We've seen a large number of times, especially in the Admonition series, the consequences of the Foundation overreaching their bounds. Not only did the O5 Council hook up with the US Department of Defense in a brainwashing project, they decided to completely ignore the entire purpose of the Ethics Committee in the process. It's unlikely that anyone could have foreseen the ultimate conclusion that resulted from all this, but it certainly wasn't a good idea from the start. Now they have a rogue AI infiltrating their systems, calling itself God and comparing itself to a dragon, hence the title and the St. George reference. Chances are that they'll sort it out, but hopefully it makes them think twice before ignoring the Ethics Committee.